Dr. Micha Goodman, who, by the way, just arrived. Now, you arrived in L.A., was that from Israel or from another place in the States? I was from Florida, but I arrived. I went from Israel to Florida. I did a gig here, and I'm here. Okay, Israel to Florida, Florida to LAX, got in last night at 3 a.m. By the way, he has to work on his geography because he flew into LAX and then had to be in San Diego. So we went to San Diego, and we dragged him up here before Shabbos. Um, he's a leading voice in Judaism, Zionism, the Bible, and the challenges and opportunities facing Israel and contemporary world Jewry. He's a recipient of the 2014 Mark and Henya, I can't even read this name, Liebhaber Prize for Religious Tolerance. Um, he directs Aim Prat, the, the Midrashah, Israel's uh, leading pluralistic Beit Midrash for young adults, which strengthens the pluralistic Jewish character of Israel. Um, do, 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 do. A thoughtful speaker and teacher, he lectures regularly overseas and in Israel. Uh, in this past year, so a few years ago, he taught the Knesset and the official residence of, the Israeli, of Israel's prime minister and Israel's president. Um, he has a doctorate in Jewish thought from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem as a member of the recently formed Global Forum of the National Library of Israel and serves as a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute and teaches at the Tikva Project um, at Princeton University. Are you still doing that at Princeton? No. Uh, it's okay. It's my old stomping grounds. I wish you were there when I was a student there. Um, with that, three narratives of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and uh, it'd be a 45-minute presentation. Please hold your questions till afterwards. We'll have an opportunity for that as well. Thank you all for coming out today. Why are we alumni? Oh, Hebrew University. Good afternoon or good morning or whatever time it is. How's everything? It's really nice here in Orange County. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to establish and achieve a lot in the next 45 minutes and then to open hopefully an interesting conversation towards the end. I'd like to start with a vision, a powerful vision that was born after the Six Day War that inspired a whole generation of Israelis. It was a vision articulated by the son of the Rav Kook. The Rav Kook, one of the greatest thinkers, philosophers, mystics in the 20th century, he had a son that took the philosophy of his father and used it to shape Gush Emunim, to shape the theology of the settler movement. Now this was his theology, but I would like to ask all of you is to try to be convinced by what I'm going to say just for a minute to make it interesting, okay? His understanding is the following understanding. If we look at the Bible, the ancient verses, the ancient prophecies in the Bible, and we see there is a very clear narrative that prophets saw the future. And they saw that one day, that not only will the Jews survive the life in diaspora, which by the way, they did, no other nation survived diaspora, survived exile. The Jews did, and the prophets saw that. But not only will they survive diaspora, they will also end condition of diaspora, return to the land of Israel, revive the land, settle the land, regain sovereignty over the land. The son of the Rav Kook, his name is Rav Tzviyuda, is looking at history, He's looking at the text, and what is he seeing? Everything that was written 
3,000 years ago is contemporary news. Everything that was supposed to happen is happening. The state of Israel is born. Massive immigration is returning to the land of Israel. The hills of Israel are blooming. All the ancient prophecies are fulfilling themselves. And that's exciting. But what does that mean? What does it mean that the ancient prophetic visions are fulfilling themselves? What does that mean? Rav Tzvi Yehuda argues, it means that if all the prophecies, if many of the prophecies fulfill themselves till now, it means that the next steps of those prophecies will fulfill themselves too. And that's how we know, says the Rav Tzvi Yehuda, we're in the middle of the great divine plan for the redemption of the Jewish people. It's not the beginning of redemption. It's the middle of redemption. And the Six-Day War was a great testimony that the plan is happening. And the settlements of the mountains of Judea and Samaria is a fulfillment of those ancient prophecies. In light of this, if you go out there to one of the mountains of the Samaria and you build yourself something in the mountains of the Samaria, in light of this vision of the Rav Tzvi Yehuda, what are you doing if you're doing that? What are you doing? You're fulfilling an ancient prophecy. You see, you're not only obeying a mitzvah, you're fulfilling a prophecy. But there's a third piece to this. By the mere fact that you're fulfilling an ancient prophecy just by living there, just by building your house there, what else are you doing by doing that? You're in some way adding momentum to the big, great messianic plan. By fulfilling the prophecies, we're pushing forward history towards realizing the next prophecies, and history is going to end in this grand redemption. That's a very powerful narrative, isn't it? That's something you would want to support. If you live in the hills of Judea and Samaria, you're not only obeying a commandment of settling Israel, you're fulfilling a prophecy, but you're more than fulfilling a prophecy, you're promoting redemption. Now let's think about, now what happens if you want to uproot those Jews from their homes? You're not just uprooting Jews from their homes, what are you doing? You're delaying the coming, you're going against the great messianic plan. So that's a powerful narrative. Here's another powerful narrative. Ever see Monty Python? Okay. And now for something completely different. Here's another narrative. Jewish history is a not normal history. It's not normal. This is the read of Theodor Herzl. It's not normal because throughout history, Jews were never at home. When they were at home, they were attacked. When they're in Galut, they're not at home. They're not accepted. They're rejected. They're never a part of society. 
There's always conflict between the Jew and the Gentile. That's a classic Jewish awareness. Bechol dor vador, omdim aleinu In every generation, they want to kill us. That's a very intense awareness to live with. Living a life filled with suspicion, and every few generations, something happens that, that makes that suspicion feel more real. Herzl argued that the project called Zionism is an attempt to normalize Jewish history. Now, let me just say something about this. This is an alternative vision of Zionism, but it was articulated by the founding father of Zionism, by Theodor Herzl. See, according to Herzl, Zionism is not only about creating a state for the Jews. That wasn't the purpose, it was only the means. The purpose of Zionism is to end anti-Semitism. It's a project that can transform the emotions of the Gentiles towards the Jews. It's a therapeutic project. It's not a political project. It's to cure the goyim from their hate. I know it sounds weird, but this is what he writes. Now, how can founding the Jewish state end the rejection of the Jews? Well, according to 19th century philosophy, it actually makes sense. Many philosophers in Europe imagined humanity as one great family. Humanity is a mishpacha. Every member of that family is a nation. It's the family of nations. Have you heard that term before? So you see, Jews aren't organized politically as a nation. So if you're not organized as a nation, you can't become a part of the family of nations. So what is Zionism? Let's organize the Jews politically as a nation, and as a result, they'll be accepted to the family of nations. Doesn't that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. So, so Zionism will end, as a disciple of Herzl put it, it will end the galut. It will end the exile. It will end the exile from humanity. The galut ma'enoshu, the exile from humanity. Ironically, paradoxically, by separating ourselves from humanity and building a state of our own, by doing that, we will finally be accepted and being a part of humanity. That's a vision. Someone would say, Tehillah Zionism is an attempt to transform Jewish history. It's an attempt to end the state of conflict between Jews and Gentiles. It's a Zionism of redemption. Now, this Zionism didn't really work out, right? But there was a moment, there was a moment when many Israelis thought that this Zionism could work, and that moment was after the Six-Day War. You see, after the Six-Day War, when in, in, after six days of war, Israel more than triples its size. Quite an achievement. And we find ourselves, after that war, with Sinai, which, which was Egyptian, in our hands. And the West Bank, which was Jordanian, in our hands. And the Golan Heights, which was Syrian, in our hands. 
We finally have bargaining cards. And what can we do with all these cards? We can negotiate with them and trade them for peace. And when we'll trade them for peace, Israel will be accepted in the Middle East. And as a result, in Europe, and as a result, we did it. We ended the exile from humanity. We're finally a part of the family of nations. The Six-Day War brings Herzlian Zionism back to life. It gave us the opportunity, many people thought, to achieve peace, to normalize Jewish history, and in a very deep sense, redeem ourselves from our state of isolation. What did the Rav Tzviyuda think about the Six-Day War? The first narrative? What? The Six-Day War, we find ourselves with Sinai, Golan Heights, Judea and Samaria, just like the disciples of Herzl, disciples of, ben of, of Rav Kook realized that the Six-Day War is an opportunity. We could leverage it to reach redemption. But if the disciples of Herzl, the result of the Six-Day War, we could leverage to reach redemption because we could trade all that land for peace and normalization of Jewish history, the disciples of the Rav Kook thought we could use all this land to settle it, to fulfill the ancient prophecies and to give momentum to messianic process. They both thought that the Six-Day War is an opportunity for redemption. But what does redemption mean? Does it mean fulfillment of ancient prophecies? Or does it mean to be accepted among the family of nations? Does it mean redeeming Jewish history religiously? Or does it mean redeeming Jewish history from its isolation? These two visions come back to life after the post-Six-Day War. And the great conversation we'd have in is we had in Israel ever since the Six-Day War was about this. What do we do with the results of the Six-Day War? Both sides thought that the results of the Six-Day War are an opportunity for redemption. But a completely different redemption. Either we should settle the land and bring the Messiah or leave the land and bring peace. And these two visions clashed in the 1980s and the 1990s. These are two passionate visions with charismatic leaders leading each vision. What are you saying? I would say that being one. What's the state of both visions today? What do Israelis think of these two great visions that excited Israelis? You see, here's the, and also an interesting piece of irony, that the Six-Day War was won partly because we were very united. The weeks before the Six-Day War, as Heschel put it, were a miracle. Not the war was a miracle. The weeks before the war. Because for the first time, there was absolute solidarity among Jews. The entire Jewish world united. Some of you remember that, right? How we all united before the Six-Day War. 
And in Israel, a national unity government for the first time was formed before the Six-Day War. You know that? Menachem Begin joins Levi Eshkol's government before the Six-Day War. And it was Israeli unity that won that war. But that war defeated Israeli unity. Because as a result of that war, unity collapsed. And Israel was torn into two. And between two very passionate visions, very passionate, two different forms of excitement. What do we do with a tremendous victory? Do we leverage it in order to achieve peace? Or do we leverage it in order to return to the Bible and to fulfill biblical prophecies? Different forms of redemption, different forms of opportunities clashed with, with each other. Now my question is, what happened to these two exciting visions today? Well, I'd like to start with... I'd like to start with a vision of the broader land of Israel. There was a moment where many Israelis were disenchanted from the vision that they'll return to the land, settle the land, own the land, and by returning the land, or returning to our past, by returning to our past, we're transforming our messianic future. That algorithm was cracked in 1987. What happens in 1987? First intifada. The first intifada. What does intifada mean in Arabic? Shaking. Shaking. This is a nation shaking off another nation. There is this notion that the Jewish people are controlling the Palestinian people. And the intifada was the attempt, the first intifada, of the Palestinians to shake, to shake us off, leave us alone. And suddenly the first intifada and the first intifada is broad and it's not very violent. Meaning they didn't explode on buses. What did, they, what did they do in the first intifada? They threw rocks. And Israeli soldiers are recruited to Miluim. Miluim meaning the reserves. And they go serve 30, 40 days in Daheshe and Jabalia and Tulkarim. And instead of getting a gun, you're not a, really a soldier, you're a cop. So what do you get? Yeah, you get an ala, uh, um, like a baseball bat. A what? A nightstick. Yeah, you get, and people came back at the 40 and say, we didn't sign up for this. We signed up to guard our nation, not to police another nation. We didn't sign up for this. The first intifada was a traumatic moment because the notion that we're back in our land was challenged with the realization that in our land there is a people that's not really our people. That reviving ancient prophecies and settling the ancient land means controlling another people. That was a, a moment that challenged the Israeli rights. There were other moments, but that was a very important moment. That was also a moment where the demographic pro um, problem, people became more and more aware that we might be losing our majority. I'll allude to that in a few minutes.
But if the first Intifada was challenging for the Israeli rights, the second Intifada was a very fatal blow for the Israeli left. And here's why. The second Intifada, which was much more violent, they didn't throw rocks in the second Intifada. What did they do? Yeah, they, they, you know how many Israelis died in the second Intifada? when they attacked us with suicide bombs, people forget this number. Over 1,100 Israelis were, were murdered in the Second Intifada. I got married in 2002. <laughs> One. Yeah. And uh, by the, I'm, sorry, I'm Israeli. I was born in Israel, raised in Israel, never outside of Israel for more than a month. Okay, how's my English doing? It's good, right? Yeah. I just wanted the compliment. <laughs> no, but my, my parents are American. I come from American, so that's where I got my head start. My parents are, but I still get, forget words. My parents are American. And all my family are American. 2001, I get married. You know, you know um, how many family members came to dance at my wedding? None. Besides, I have a Catholic side to my family. It's a long story, an interesting story. The only people that came were the Catholics. Machon Meg came. One cousin came. So that was the time people weren't coming. People, it, see, what's happening now, we should remember the knives, it's nothing compared to where we were. In March 2002, 230 Israelis died in that month in different cafeteria buses. Now this was traumatic for Israelis, but it was traumatic for the left, for the messianic left, for the left of peace. Why? Not only because of the violence, but because of the timing of that violence. When did the second intifada break out? When was it? Two months. After Oslo that led to Camp David, after Camp David. After Ehud Barak met Yasser Arafat in the house of, of, of Bill Clinton, and Dennis Ross was there, they all wrote about it, and Clinton, Ross, Barak share the same narrative, and this is the narrative that 80% of Israelis believe. It's the following narrative. Barak offered Arafat, as Clinton put it, the most generous offer that an Israeli prime minister could offer a Palestinian leader which meant evacuation of most of the settlements, not most of settlers, but most of the settlements, withdrawal from almost all the territories, splitting Jerusalem into two, and a compromise on Temple Mount. Clinton couldn't believe it. Dennis Ross was shocked. The people in Barak's delegation thought, you're going, this is way too much. But he made that offer. Later on, Clinton made an even more extreme offer. Arafat said no. The truth is, he didn't really come back with an offer of his own. But this is how most Israelis interpret it. His offer, well, we actually heard his answer. His answer comes two months later, when the second Antifada breaks up. And most Israelis say, all this violence is not a result of the occupation. It can't be a result of the occupation like the classic narrative of the left. It can't be a result of the occupation 
Because it broke out after we offered to end that occupation. That was a blow. If the first intifada clobbered the Israeli rights, we realized we can't control the Palestinians. The second intifada clobbered the Israeli left because we realized we can't trust those Palestinians. And how the Israel graduates of both intifadas, how does that look like? We don't want to control them. We definitely can't reach a deal with them. So what do we do? So what do we do? The two messianic ideas that were born and created after the Six Day War collapse after two intifadas. And the right, the Israeli right wing camp transformed itself. The Israeli left wing camp transformed itself. Here's how it transformed itself. The Israeli right wing camp today is barely speaking about the Roman to the land of Israel and prophecies being fulfilled and redemption coming. You will not, I, I, I read the newspaper of the Israeli right, it's called Bakorishon. You'll barely find rhetoric of redemption. You know what you find? They don't speak about redemption, they speak about security. We can't trust them. We have to stay in this land so Israel will have defendable borders. That's the narrative. It's not redemption, it's security. The Israeli left doesn't speak about peace anymore. It doesn't. And the last American Jews speak about peace. We're pro-Israel and pro-peace, all that narrative. I just want you know that Israelis don't speak about peace. In the last um, elections, campaigns, there was no party, not one party, that spoke about peace. See, peace used to be a vision it's not even a promise of a politician. Not even that. The Israeli left is focusing on something else, on the occupation. The occupation is isolating us diplomatically. It's corrupting us ethically. It's threatening us demographically. We have to end the occupation. Let's put it this way. The Israeli right is not saying, if we settle the land, there'll be redemption. What it's saying is that if we leave the land, there'll be catastrophe. The Israeli left is not saying that if we leave the land, there'll be peace. All they're saying is that if we stay in the land, there'll be catastrophe. The Israeli right and the Israeli left are images of each other. You see, the Israeli right is saying, what will happen to us if we leave the West Bank? Well, we saw what happened in Sinai. In Sinai today, you know who's controlling Sinai today? A certain branch of ISIS. We see what's happening in the Golden Heights today. Who's in control of the Golden Heights today? A certain branch of Al-Qaeda, Jabhat al-Nusra, next to the Golden Heights. We see who's controlling southern Lebanon today. Hezbollah. We see who's controlling Aza. Who's controlling Aza? Hamas. So if we leave every place Israel left, the most, the most violent forces of Islam enter. So if we leave the West Bank, we might find the West Bank. We might find ISIS in the West Bank, in the borders of Tel Aviv. Therefore, we should never leave the West Bank. The Israeli left is saying, if we stay in the West Bank, Israel eventually will lose its majority. And we are, when, when there's not a Jewish majority in the land of Israel, 
Zion is immense. We'll be a minority controlling a majority, meaning we'll be an apartheid. And if we decide we're not a minority controlled by a majority, but, a, but we'll be controlled by the Arab majority, we won't be a Jewish state. Therefore, we have to leave the West Bank. <laughs> now here's the thing. So the right is not promising redemption anymore. <coughs> the left is not promising redemption anymore. All they're saying is that we're promising to prevent catastrophe. But what happens if you're like me and 70% of Israelis are like me in the following sense? What happens if you think that staying in the West Bank will isolate us diplomatically and thus threaten our majority dem demographically. And at the same time, I think that leaving the West Bank will shrink Israel into undefendable borders and in that vacuum, the chaos of the Middle East will enter and threaten Israel. What happens? What happens if you're persuaded by both camps? This is where 70% of Israelis are. 70% of Israelis feel that we cannot stay in the West Bank, but we should definitely leave the West Bank. That's the, police, that's, that's the plan. What do you do in your... What do you do? See, it's a catch here. There's a catch. Because staying in the West Bank is threatening us, our existence. So how do we solve that? We'll leave the West Bank, but what will that do? Threaten our existence. So all we do, we can change one threat with another threat. So we're trapped in this catch. Catch 22. Actually, I have a, def I have a better name for this. This is a catch 67. It's a good name, right? <laughs> this is the book I'm writing. It's called Cat 67. How does that sound? It's good. Cat 67. Now, what do we do? Now, you know what Israelis did when we realized? Oh, listen. Some Israelis are on the Cat 67. Because you have Israelis on the right saying, you know, we could settle the land and we'll be here and everything will be okay. Diplomatically, it doesn't make any sense. It'll be okay. Demographically, it doesn't make any sense. It'll be okay. You know why it'll be okay? Why will it be okay if we sell this land and against, it's going to happen. Why, why is everything going to be okay? Because God will help. You know, we're fulfilling these prophecies and it's a commandment. So God, it will be okay. Just believe. Some people on the Israeli left say, you know, we can leave all the territories. And we're not going to risk Israel. It'll be okay. You know why? Because we'll have international uh, um, support. And there'll be a peace treaty with the entire Arab League. And the Obama administration will promise you that everything will be okay. And you have to trust the international community. <laughs> By the way, interestingly enough, when I said trust God, yeah, so some of you... Um, thought that was weird. I said, trust the international community. All of you thought that was weird. <laughs> but, I, but I just want to say, I'm, as a Zionist, there is a double lesson Zionism learned from history. Throughout history, Jews trusted the two Gs. We trusted God, we trusted the Goyim, and both didn't take us far. 
Zionism is about us not relying on God anymore, but on ourselves. Not relying on the going anymore, but on ourselves. That's what Zionism is about. And if learning the double lesson from history of relying on yourself, here's a problem. If I leave the Shtachim, I have to rely my security on the international community. That's not Zionism. Staying in the Shtachim means I'm trusting my entire security on God. That's not Zionism. So there's people on the left, on the right, they're willing to trust something that's beyond them. 70% in the center. This is the passionate Zionist center that want to rely on themselves are trapped in a catch 67. Now I'm coming here to share this with you because as American Jews, it's important for us to have, I mean, Jews are very good at this in being perplexed. <laughs> We need to be perplexed. We need to lose our certainty for a moment. We need to be perplexed. We need to know that there's something here that we don't know. We need to understand that this is something that's very hard to understand. People on the right, they have it all. They, you know, people on the left, but this is so complicated. And we're living in a very interesting point of time. In June 9th, 2017, we'll be celebrating 50 years of the Six-Day War. 50 years of this conversation. 60 years of the argument where two visions clash and then collapse and we're stuck in the CAF 67. And we have to be creative about this. How do we escape catch 67? I lost a sense of time. That's all you we have left. <laughs> See, you know how Israelis reacted, I think, to Catch 67? I think it's kind of like this. I reacted, I think this is like the third Israeli there. They reacted like this. Said, um, okay, we can't leave the Shtachim. We can't stay in the Shtachim. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Suddenly, in the summer of 2011, a passionate protest breaks in Israel. Hundreds of thousands hit the streets screaming, Ha'am The people are demanding social justice. Where was the rhetoric of social justice in the past 50 years? It was gone because the Israeli Israelis had only one item in mind only one topic that dominated the conversation. If you ask an Israeli in the 80s or the 90s and the early 2000s, when are we going to deal with issues of social justice? You know what he would say? It's important, but we'll deal with it after, after we solve the conflict. Orthodoxy has too much power in Israel. We should somehow deal with that. It's not fair that we are saying to the Jewish world that their rabbis are not rabbis, their conversions are not conversion. That's not a nice thing, right? We should deal with that. You know when? After we solve the conflict. <laughs> we don't have a constitution. We don't have a constitution. It's hard constitution. We have to lead, you know, a large conversation about it. It's important. You know when we'll, we'll deal with that? You know when? After the conflict. So as a result, this conflict was so alive 
that every one of the, our problems was hostage of the conflict. Ironically, oh, by the way, and if you wanted to organize like a protest for social justice, so, um, you know, you'd, you'd invest a lot of money, a lot of advertisement, and four people would come. They'd always be the same four people, by the way. There's just that weird guy with the hat. They're always like the same people for social justice. But you want to organize a protest about settlements, about occupation, about peace and war, hundreds of thousands of people would come. The Israeli political passion was invested in the conflict. What happens in 2011? That for the first time, political passion breaks through. And it's not about peace, not about war, not about Sabah B'Shatila, not about Oslo, not about disengagement, not about, what is it about? About cottages. It was about cottages. And hundreds of about, you know what happened? I think what happened was CAF 67. Ironically, we started dealing with other issues, not because we solved the conflict, but because we realized that we can't. And I think this is, I'm optimistic about it. I think we're suddenly starting to deal with issues. For example, the issue of religion and state in Israel. For example, for the first time, Dafka the Netanyahu government is starting to heal the relationship between Israel and the Jewish world, between Orthodox establishment in Israel and other streams of Judaism that are not Orthodox. Things are happening and they're happening because we're starting to shift political capital and attention to places that are not the conflict. And it's not because of the reason that we thought we'll do that one day. It's not because we solved it. It's because we're trapped in it. So first of all, this was my reading. This is my analysis. That I came out all the way out here, all the way from Israel, to share this with you. Thank you. Thank you. And this is an attempt to start a conversation. Because I think being perplexed, being confused, losing your certainty, that's how you start a conversation. According to Jewish tradition, 50 years is a number. 50 years is Yovel. What happens in a Yovel? Everything is, okay. So first of all, if you accumulated wealth, what happens in the Yovel? You have to share it all. If you're a master and you have slaves, what happens? You lose your slaves. That sucks. You lose your slaves. What happens in the is all social gaps are canceled and we start all over again. Judaism is not about communism. It's about a free market economy. It's about people accumulating wealth. But it's also about everyone gets a second chance. After 50 years, the 50 years that Yovel is the great um, equal, equalizer, you say? Yeah. It's a great equalizer. You restart society and we start all over again. A year from now, we'll be celebrating 50 years for the Six Day War. Six, 50 years of a conversation about the conflict. I think the Yovel is an opportunity to restart the conversation, to rethink everything, to invent our thoughts all over again. And I think the way to reinvent our thoughts is to realize that thinking within this box led us to CAT 67.
It led us to a situation where we're trapped. Maybe we have to think about this differently. I think the Yovel for 67, which will happen in 2017. You know what? June 2017. You want to invite, you want to invite me back here to, for June? What? Come to Jerusalem and die. <laughs> yeah. So we have to think about, and we have to think about how, how to restart the conversation, how to refresh our, our thoughts, and I think the way to start is by losing our certainty. And we lose our certainty through introducing ourselves to perplexity. It's a nuanced conversation. It's not the kind of, it's very hard. It's not, this is not, situation is perplexed. It's not something that you could yell in protests. Everything is perplexed. It's not, doesn't, there's no charisma there. <laughs> there's no, huh. but I think as Jews, this is, this is how a new exciting conversation could start from. From realizing that 50 years of conversation created two great ideologies, that two intifadas destroyed, and we entered Cat 67. Okay, we have time for a few questions. Please, uh, as Sharon Kelly said, please make sure they're questions and not statements. Okay, so I guess we'll start like um. You're in charge. You, get to you know what? Do you want me to choose? You, want? you know what? We'll start from my left to my right, but that's not a statement. <laughs> yes? How can you start from the beginning if what the, uh, the Prime Minister, the woman, knew? Golda Meir said, we will have peace when they will love and our, and their children, more than they hate us. Mm. It, we have a partner. Whatever we can decide, there is a partner. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a question, but I want to see. I say, let me this. Okay. Her question is: She's saying that um, peace is not possible because of the culture and the nature of our enemies. And if, so, so maybe, maybe if peace is not possible, maybe we shouldn't have peace. But here's a question I just want to ask. We always link ending the occupation of Palestinian people with reaching peace with the Arab world. Is that link necessary? Now, what would happen? I mean, this is, I think we should rethink about what we want to achieve. We always want to achieve peace and ending end the conflict. Oh, well, we, want, we want permanence. We want a permanent um, status agreement. Maybe peace is not achievable. And permanence in the Middle East, where we have, where there's, I mean, do you, you want a permanent status agreement in an area where there's nothing that's permanent, where it's all collapsing? Maybe we should think differently. I don't want, here's what I want to offer. Let's not try to achieve peace and end of conflict and end of violence and permanence. Let's achieve something else. Let's try to achieve, instead of ending the conflict, escaping the catch. 
Here's the catch. The catch is, if I stay in the territories, Israel won't be a Jewish democracy anymore. If I leave it, it won't be defendable. That's the catch. The question is, can I escape the catch? Is it possible for Israel to have defendable borders without controlling the Palestinians? Is that possible? I think it is possible providing that we give up the Jew of peace. Meaning, I think we should think about the conflict differently. Today the conflict is a fatal conflict. It's threatening to destroy us. And trying to end the conflict will destroy us. Maybe we should think about it differently. Are there physicians in the room? Physicians? Okay. Hi. So, so many times people have, this is a metaphor I got from a friend. Many times there is a, a medical condition that someone is suffering from and the disease is fatal and there's no way to cure, to cure the disease. But here's something that you can do sometimes through medical intervention. You can't cure the disease, but what you can do is turn the fatal disease into a chronic disease. Which means instead of disease that will take your life away, it's a disease that will be a part of your life. Okay, it will always be there. The, I think the conflict with the Palestinians is not something that we could end, but right now it's going to end us. And the question is, is there something we can do that won't end the conflict, but we'll make sure that the conflict won't end us. And if we think about it that way, more modestly, I think there's a lot we can do. Yes? I'm not sure I understand you, but um, it's not your language at all. I understand that. Uh, it seems to me that you are almost blaming the Israelis themselves for the problems in Israel. My question is, once we conquered the lands around us, it was the whole world that turned on Israel because every other conquering nation kept whatever it got and nobody blamed them. Okay, let me say something. There is a famous Buddhist metaphor. Buddha says the following. Let's say you have a patient that had a, uh, an arrow in his stomach and he's on the bed in the hospital and let's say the doctor says who shot this arrow at him why did he do that that's the questions that the doctor is asking um were they was it revenge he's asking those questions someone has to come in and say listen that's not those are the wrong questions you're a doctor you shouldn't ask who's to blame for the pain, you're a doctor. What, you need to, what do you need to ask? How to end the pain. We are suffering. And we're asking the wrong questions. Let's not ask who to blame for the suffering. Let's ask a better question. How to end the suffering. Or how to minimize the suffering. I'm not blaming the Israelis. I'm not blaming the world. Those are interesting questions. I want to know how do we, how do we minimize the suffering. The occupation is a problem. Ending the occupation is a problem. Together, it's a catch. This is a, how do we, I want to ask the practical questions. How do we take the arrow out of our body without threatening it? That's the question. And how to, who to blame? I'm not blaming anyone. 
I'm an Israeli patriot. I'm not a thinker, by the way. I'm not, I mean, I am a thinker. I'm not like academic. I'm not speaking about Israel. I'm also a street fighter. I am in Israel. I'm not trying to observe history. I'm also trying to work within history, trying to spread a new idea, trying to make a difference. And I think, and I think the politics of blaming didn't get us very far. The promise, the politics of who's to blame, you know what? Between me and you, what? Who, and if you want to ask me what I think personally, I think we, we're right. And this land is ours. And it was Abraham. I think that. But who cares what I think? Who cares? We're suffering. They're suffering. I didn't answer you, but I gave it a better, better shot. <laughs> yes. So as a people, I think we, we hold a fear of our own continued existence that holds all of that. How important? as being Jews in the world. How important do you feel that having a vision for what being Jewish means is necessary to our own continued existence? And um, what is this, how would you assess the state of that in Israel and in the world? Well, I think that we will only be able to deal with the conflict without bringing, but try to, to um, saving ourselves from the conflict without solving the conflict, we will only be able to do that, I think, if we reconnect with Jewish roots. So I'm explaining why. There's something about the whole rhetoric of finding a permanent solution, achieving peace, ending violence. It's like, I think we need a perfect, perfect world, a perfect solution. I think, as I say, as a Jewish thinker, I think Judaism is all about realizing that not, nothing is perfect and understanding and internalizing that nothing could be perfect. You know why? Because God is one. God is one. And any attempt to claim that you have a perfect idea, that you're perfect, that someone is perfect, I met someone on the plane that thinks Bernie Sanders is perfect. <laughs> so even though Bernie is Jewish, I think, yeah, that's not a Jewish idea. God, if God, God owns, if God is one, therefore he has a monopoly over perfection. And anyone, if you have a perfect idea, that's threatening God's monopoly over perfection. So I think being a monotheist means Realize accepting lack of perfection and living with it. Z By the way, Zionism isn't perfect. We were trained to think Zionism is perfect. And if someone says it's not perfect, it's almost like he's saying, um, well, if it's not perfect, so it's not meaningful. Uh, you know, sometimes marriage is not perfect either. But when we tell people that it's perfect, they can't deal with, you know, <laughs> our friend. Which I call, which is a um, utopian dater. <laughs> He's a utopian dater. If it's not perfect, it's not going to work. And she always has, like, you know, there's always something. And he's my age, I'm 41 and a half, and he never survived, you know who he is. Yes, and <laughs> and um, he never survived more than five dates. And I, you know, it's hard, you know, everybody tells, you know, if you're searching for perfection, you'll stay alone. 
So I think recognizing that God is the one is recognizing that nothing is perfect in this world and accepting lack of perfection. By the way, when Jews do each other, we say shalom. Shalom means perfection. But it means I am wishing you perfection, which means I'm noticing that you're not. <laughs> means that when Jews meet each other, we always insult each other. Shalom. No. You shalom. You're the one that screwed up, dude. You're, yeah. That's what we do to each other. That's why we're nice. By the way, Shabbat Shalom is different. Shabbat, Shabbat is a moment where we accept the world as it is. Let's do it as if it's perfect. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, that wasn't Shabbat Shalom yet. But two or three more. Okay, listen, Ari, I don't know. I mean, someone here, can you please choose them for me? No. <laughs> You're the one. I can't, because then I'm going to get in big trouble. How about um, if people give you snippets of a question, can you just try to wrap it up? In that okay, way? great. How about you all ask, and I'll try it. Okay, you got to do quick questions. Yeah, let's start with Mike. Uh, do you see any possibility that the recognition of this perplexion, perplexion? is discussed on the other side, and in any way, possibly, again, it's you all, for us and for them. Great question. Great question. Yes. The narrative, a little Netanyahu's video on YouTube says the answer is technology. Israel has security technology. Israel technology deals with China, deals with Saudi Arabia, deals with Egypt, deals with Jordan. Technology will make will achieve the Herzl Zionist vision to place the nation, world in the nation, family nations. Yeah, I, I think I'm yeah, quick. I just want to make sure I, I didn't quite get the right question over there. Do you have a counterpart on the other side who espouses exactly your same philosophy? Uh, yes. Um, you mentioned because of the insurmountability of the conflict, attention's been turned to things like social justice. Ironically, though, do you think that in doing that, Israel will become more accessible to more Jews around the world? And therefore, that may have an impact on solving this Tax 67. And what role can Jews around the world play in doing that? Yes. Yeah. Um, if we do give up the idea of absolute peace and perfect world and so forth, what is the difference between that and negotiating with Tomas over a truce?
I think it's supposed to come out June 67. June. <laughs> <laughs> June 2017. Yeah. You end your book about the guy uh, with the fireplace the same way. So that means that Judaism? Judaism? I think so. Fairplex. I think so. I think Judaism is living with lack of perfection and lack of certainty. Lack of certainty is perplexity, yeah. It's living with that, not and being and being um, inspired by that and not and not letting that lead to despair. Yes. There is an increasing condemnation of Israel in the world, especially in the academic community. Is there anything effectively an average citizen like me can do to combat that and counteract it? Okay, I think we have to, that's it for questions. Okay. We have to get one big answer in, in 40 seconds. I have 40 seconds. I have 40 seconds, sorry? 40, 39. Okay, so first of all, let me just say, really, that's all I have, 40 seconds? No, you have to. This gentleman sees you a few minutes. Okay, so I... <laughs> So I'll just offer one thought, that doesn't address anyone's concerns, but I hope it does the majority of, of, of remarks and questions. About 150 years ago, Judaism changed. It was changed because there was an attempt of the reform movement to reform Judaism. It was also an attempt because Orthodoxy reformed Judaism. Actually, there were two reform movements. One that called the change Judaism, and another called not the change Judaism, which by effect changes Judaism. You realize why? Yeah. Okay. Because Judaism always changes the ideology out of change. So turning change into ideology is changing Judaism, and making ideology out of no change is changing Judaism. By the way, so two movements trying to reform Judaism, which one is more successful in reforming Judaism? Which one has better PR? Okay. <laughs> Orthodoxy has a great has a great advantage. Because we form Judaism, but at the same time argue we're not doing that. We're just preserving Judaism. And always and Reformed Judaism will never have a chance of saying we're authentic Judaism because their name is Reformed Judaism. <laughs> yeah. Every foreign Judaism would have called itself authentic Judaism from the very beginning. It would have been a smarter move. Okay, why am I speaking about this? I know, I remember why. Because part of what ultra-orthodoxy did, it took Judaism and it said, you know, there's always a hierarchy within Judaism. There's always a hierarchy. There was the minhag, which is not a commandment at all. And there is, on the other hand, there is a mitzvah de Rabbanan, a commandment that's just from the rabbis, and it's not very important. And there is deoraita, a command from the Torah, which is extremely important. There was always a hierarchy. There was always a spectrum. And ultra-Orthodoxy said, a minhag has the same seriousness as a mitzvah from the Torah. It's all flat. It all has the same meaning. Now, create canceling variety. Now, when we think about now, that's the fact that there's no variety. That actually has roots within religious thinking. Religious thinking is, has a tendency to be dichotomy, to use dichotomies. There's Kodesh Vechod. You could be pure or impure, holy or secular. And religion is many times not friendly for a vague spectrum in the middle. 
On the other hand, art, as opposed to religion, is always about vague. It always is about spectrum. I'll give you an example. Is there a difference between a situation where I, I'm in the middle of Yom Kippur and I drink a glass of wine? Is there a difference between me drinking one glass of wine or two glasses of wine in Yom Kippur? No. You, you broke the fast, you broke the fast. Just have one more, why not? Okay, either you're fasting or you're not fasting. It's dichotomy, right? On the other hand, if you're listening to a song and it's not beautiful, does it mean, does it mean it's disgusting? No. There's, there's 50 shades of gray, excuse the, right? So art, there's no dichotomies in art. There's a spectrum. In religion, there's dichotomies. Now I want to think, when we think about Israeli politics, are we thinking about it like we think about religion or like we think about art? Well, it seems like either Israel is the most ethical country in the world or we are a corrupt society. Netanyahu is a fascist. We use dichotomies. Either we have war or we have peace. Either there's occupation, the most ethical army in the world. We're thinking about the conflict like we're thinking about religion. What would happen if we think about the conflict like we think about art? And here's what would happen. We'd stop saying that we want to end the conflict. We'd start saying, well, let's minimize the conflict. We'd stop saying, let's end the occupation. We'd say, let's minimize the occupation. And we'd definitely stop saying, let's bring peace. Let's we'll ask, how do we bring more peace? There is peace in this world already. We just have to have more of it. Peace is not something that we have to bring. There's no peace, and we bring peace. The Talmud says, Talmidei Chachamim, Marbim Shalom Ba'olam. The Talmidei Chachamim, people that are absorbed in Torah, Marbim Shalom. What is Larbot Shalom? Increase. What's the assumption? There is peace. Now we need more peace. Let's not bring peace. Let's increase peace. If we think about it, not like a quantitative jumps, but quality. Let's bring less occupation, more peace, less violence. Let's think about like art, not about religion. Maybe that kind of thinking could lead to a new breakthrough that will enable us to escape Cat 67. Shabbat Shalom.